was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brother and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks, Jamie. Good morning. The glory of God. Uh, What comes to mind when you hear that phrase, the glory of God? Uh, For me, supernatural brightness, right? Clouds and thunder, loud noises, things shaking, an angelic choir. Whatever comes to mind, it's probably awe-inspiring and amazing, right? When you hear that phrase, the glory of God. I mean, that would be the minimum requirement for glory, wouldn't it? Awe-inspiring, amazing. That's what we find in the Old Testament when the glory shows up. A few examples. The first one, uh, God delivers his people from uh, slavery in Egypt, the Exodus. Israel's trapped. uh, You might remember this from our year in the Bible back in Exodus. Israel's trapped between the Red Sea in front of them, Pharaoh and his armies behind them, and they're they're in a, a pickle, I guess we could say. And we read in Exodus 14, 18, Uh, The Lord says, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. And he did that when his power broke out against them, and he drowned his enemies and saved his own. He got glory. Another example, when God gives the law to Moses, Exodus 24, there we read, the Lord said to Moses, come up on the mountain and wait there. I'll give you the tablets of stone that I've written for the people, the, the commandments, the law. Moses goes up on the mountain. There's a cloud that covers the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. The cloud covered it six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moses out from the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and he stayed there 40 days and 40 nights. It's another example of the glory of God. One final example, Isaiah 6 God commissions Isaiah to be his prophet, and we read in verse 1 of chapter 6, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So when we hear glory, or we're familiar with the scripture, or you, you think about that word, that phrase, the glory of God, it's not strange that our minds would rush to clouds and smoke and fire and angels and holiness and foundation shaking and loud voices from heaven. The glory of God, we could say, is an audio-visual extravaganza, isn't it? Now take all those sights and sounds that point to God's power and splendor and majesty, all those things the four living creatures and the 24 elders and all the angels around the throne of God are singing about, about Him in Revelation 4 and 5. You take all that glory and you veil it in human flesh and what or who do you have? That's right. Jesus Christ. The glory of God is still absolutely present with him, but it's veiled. It's hidden so often. Now, there's a couple places in the New Testament where we see the glory kind of peeking through. It manifests in a, a powerful way. One that comes to mind, maybe you, you were thinking this too, is the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Matthew chapter 17. Matthew says that Jesus took three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, up on a high mountain. Verse 2, chapter 17, and he's transfigured before them, that's Jesus. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. So it sounds like Old Testament, Old Covenant glory, right? Behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And while Jesus was still speaking with them, behold, a bright cloud overshadows them, and a voice from the cloud says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces, terrified. This is the glory we'd expect from God, right? Bright lights, bright clouds, a voice from heaven, a frightful response. So that's one example, but there's another example of the glory of Christ in the New Testament. And it's a bit embarrassing to have to even point this one out because it's just so obvious. After you hear it, you're probably going to say, of course, duh, yeah, yeah. Are you ready? It's in our passage this morning. We just heard it read. It's that time that Jesus, along with his family and disciples, got dressed up and went to a wedding. Whoa, that's a lot of glory, isn't it? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and went to a wedding. That sounds odd, doesn't it? It does, even for Christians who believe that God became flesh in the person of Jesus. I mean, the Word became flesh and offered up a perfect sacrifice to a holy God. Check, that's glorious. He became flesh to destroy the power of the devil with his death on the cross, right? Check, glory. Set free those who were bound by sin, glory, check. Live forever with his redeemed people in a new creation, that sounds really glorious, another check. That sounds right, what we'd expect, but the Word became flesh and went to a wedding? It's just harder to get behind, isn't it? It sounds so ordinary, doesn't it? So pedestrian. Aren't there better things for the Son of God to do than go to weddings? What would you expect from the long-awaited Messiah when He finally came? To make good on a save-the-date? Would that be on any of our list? 
but it was on his list. The word became flesh and went to a wedding. That's what he did. One pastor says, while Jesus was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, he was also a man who went to parties and enjoyed himself. Jesus knew how to have a good time, how to celebrate special occasions with joy, with friends. In fact, when the wine ran out at this wedding in Cana, he doesn't just say, oh, I guess the Lord knew our limits and now we're out. He makes more and better wine. And with that in mind, are you ready to go to a wedding? Okay, thank you. I should hold up an H for hypothetical question and then uh, another, I don't know, an R for please respond. It's hard to tell sometimes, I understand. To remind you, John writes in his gospel, he writes what he does so that people will put their faith in Jesus, who is the Christ, and then they'll get life instead of death. He knows that for people to believe in Jesus, to uh, receive the life he offers, that they must see his glory, they must see how unique he is, that he's radiant, that he has divine power. If you don't see Christ as glorious, then nothing will be changed for you. You have to see him as glorious if you're going to leave everything and follow him, right? We don't leave everything to follow a good man or a good teacher. There's plenty of those. But if he's different, if he's unique, if he's glorious, he's worth it. We see his glory this morning at a wedding, which is not a place we'd expect to find it. A quick word about weddings. Uh, Weddings in the first century in, in Cana, like our weddings today, great celebrations of marriage. But unlike ours, which are often 45-minute ceremonies followed by a buffet or a sit-down dinner, and then we go home, their wedding celebrations went on for days, even up to a week. The ceremony usually took place in the evening. It was customary for the groom and his friends to leave his home, proceed to the home of of the bride. That's where the ceremony took place. And then they would all come back to the groom's home for a week-long celebration of food and wine and rejoicing. Weddings also had religious significance for the Jews. It wasn't just an institution blessed by God, which it was. But when Jews reflected on heaven or the coming of the Messiah, they often thought of banquets. And the wedding banquet was the most important one. It got top billing. This wedding would have been announced well in advance, cause for great celebration. Friends and family are there, neighbors too, a great day of honor and joy. And it's at this celebration, a a wedding, that Jesus performs his first sign, his first miracle in the Gospel of John. And it's also here that we get a glimpse of his glory at this wedding. This morning, uh, there's an outline in your bulletin. We'll see Christ's glory in three things and fill in the blank. Uh, Not usually what I do, but it seemed to be helpful in this case. So we see Christ's glory first in his words to his mother, We see Christ's glory in his words to his mother. The wedding took place not far from the city of Nazareth in a small village where Nathanael lived, Cana of Galilee. The mother of Jesus is specifically identified as being on the guest list. We see that in verse 1. Maybe uh, this is a, a relative's wedding for Mary. At a minimum, she's important to the family, so she's there. She's invited, so are Jesus and his disciples They're all there, and we learn pretty quickly in this opening scene, these first few verses of chapter 2, that Jesus is no ordinary son. 
He has an exalted sonship, a sonship to his heavenly father that is greater than his sonship to his earthly mother. This doesn't mean Jesus ever disrespected mom, ever disobeyed his mother, but it does mean that his ultimate allegiance is not to Mary, it's to his father in heaven, right? Whatever father says goes. John 8, 28 and 29, Jesus says, when you lifted up the son of man, you'll know that I am he and I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the father has taught me. I always do the things that are pleasing to him, Jesus says. Jesus lived to please the Father above all others, even above his mother, Mary. What else explains his words to his mom at this wedding? So imagine the scene, Mary, Jesus, his disciples, let's say they're all sitting around a table, enjoying the food and the drink. They're relaxing, they're laughing, they're, they're doing what people do at weddings. I don't know if they're clinking their glasses with their silverware so the couple kisses. I don't know. Maybe. But then Mary discovers something, right, during the celebration, a major problem. Her face turns to worry. She leans over to her son, Jesus, and in verse 3, she says, they're out of wine, right? Imagine uh, you are, are being at a wedding, and it's a sit-down dinner. There's out-of-town guests. It's a lot of people filling a hall. Halfway through, the server, uh, the, the caterer comes and says, um, We've completely run out of chicken. And you're thinking, that's okay, we have salmon. And then he says, and, and salmon too? Like we're completely out of the main course. What do you want us to do? Give back all the money. You stink. That's what we want you to do. That would be terrible, wouldn't it? I mean, how embarrassing, how uncomfortable. And as terrible as that would be for us, it would have been far worse for them. They lived in an honor and shame culture. And it would take a long, long time to recover from the shame of running out of wine at the wedding. In fact, and, and this reminds us how different our culture is from theirs, this running out of wine, which would have been embarrassing for us, could actually lead to a lawsuit for them. So the family of the bride could actually sue the groom for ruining the wedding. What a great start to work, you know, in-laws starting in the red. This is very, very bad. Mary says to Jesus, knowing this, son, can you help? Can you help? It seems likely that Mary's husband Joseph is dead now because he's not mentioned outside the early chapters of the Gospels. And we know he was an honorable guy, so he didn't just take off and abandon the family. If that's the case, then Jesus, the firstborn son, would be responsible to take care of the family, and mom is leaning on him for help. Now, his response to his mother in this story is meant to shock us. Maybe you, you were shocked when we heard it. John knew it would shock his first century readers. It shocks us today. Mary says, son, they're out of wine. Can you help? And Jesus starts by saying, woman, and I don't know if that was his tone and if he held the hand out, but... <laughs> Woman, I, I don't know if it matters how you say. When you start like that with mom, right? <laughs> Woman, what does this have to do with me? Right now, our modern ears are probably hearing a more offensive-sounding Jesus than Mary would have heard. And uh, to test that out, just try speaking to your mom like that the next time she asks you for help. Right? So my mom, because son, can you drop by the house and fix the screen door later? And I say, woman. 
what does that have to do with me? So if you're close to your mom and you speak to her that way, get ready to duck, right? Because, you know, you deserve it. It wasn't just like that, but it was blunt. It was. It was putting polite distance between Jesus and his mother Mary. Again, Jesus isn't sinning when he speaks this way. He was an obedient son. He was perfectly obedient to Mary. But he's saying something like, it's not your place to ask me for this. And then he adds, my hour has not yet come. And that's interesting. My hour, that phrase points to Jesus' death on the cross. We see that as we continue to read through John. John 7.30 says they're seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. It means it's not time for him to die yet. Later in John 12 He'll say the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, and then he starts talking about dying because that's, that's where they're moving toward that, my hour. I think what's going on here then in his response to Mary's request and him saying my hour hasn't yet come is that Jesus is saying, Mom, if right now, early in my ministry, I go full Messiah at this wedding and perform this miracle in a really public way, the word about me is going to start spreading more quickly than my father has planned, and my hour will get here in a hurry, and it's not yet that time. My hour has not yet come. Now, and this is really interesting, right? If we, if we read the, the Bible or the Gospels and think, ah, I kind of knew all that, we're not reading it rightly because it constantly uh, shocks us, and it, it, it's got all these twists and weird stuff and questions. What's interesting is that Jesus solves the problem of the wine shortage, right? The problem his mom brought to him. But he does it on his own terms. He does it in a way that he could say, my father and not my mother has directed me in this. But all we see in verse 4 is an ungranted request. Jesus mildly rebukes his mom for her request, but then he goes ahead and solves the problem anyway, and it's confusing. I think we can confidently say that Mary was asking for something that wasn't hers to ask, right? She wanted Jesus to do what she told him to do, and that's not happening. But then notice, she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. So it's Jesus's actions, not Mary directing her son. That's different. Mary was overstepping her bounds on the basis, probably, of being Jesus' mother, right? And Jesus is making very clear to her throughout the gospel, to us future readers as well, a very important point. You can't pull rank with Jesus. Not even his mom could, right? There's no inside track for friends and family, He's no ordinary son. All that social stuff, that, that kind of relationship between mother, mother and sons, that works for everybody else. That was their culture. That was right. But Jesus is not just any ordinary son. He's glorious. He's unique. He's the Messiah. Christ's glory is veiled, but it peeks through in his words to his mom. So that's where we see his glory first. In addition, we see Christ's glory in the gift he brings to the wedding. Mary says they have no wine. Jesus says, well, let them drink water. No, he doesn't say that. Wine makes the heart glad, says the psalmist. Right? Water's fine, but water's for Tuesdays out in the field on a hot day. Wine is for weddings. 
By turning water to wine, Jesus not only provides more and better wine to keep the celebration going, he also spares the newlyweds from great shame. Most of the guests knew nothing about the wine running out. Isn't that incredible? We know because we have it in the Bible and we get to read about it. Most of them knew nothing about that. The groom and bride probably don't uh, know that he performed this great miracle at their wedding. Jesus brought to the wedding the best gift of all, and he doesn't even bother to put his name on the tag. Most had no clue what happened that day. Turning water to wine points to the fact that Jesus loves celebrations, and we should not miss that. I mean, he's accused of being a glutton and a drunkard, of hanging out with the wrong people. He loved to be with people. He loved to celebrate and rejoice all the good gifts God had given. But more than the fact that he loves celebrations, and he does, more significantly, turning the water to wine points to the fact that he's someone special, someone unique, that he's the Messiah, the Christ whom Israel had been waiting for. The prophets, they spoke about him. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, they spoke of the day of the Lord. When the Messiah is going to come, he's going to rescue his people from their enemies, and he's going to restore them and heal them and save them, and that would be a day of great celebration. And do you know what God's people will be drinking on that day when their Messiah comes? Do you know what will be flowing freely in great abundance? Not mineral water, friends. <laughs> Wine. I'll just read one passage, Amos 9, 13, and 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. So wine throughout the scriptures is a symbol of God's blessings on his people. So when the wine is flowing freely, God's blessings are too. And when the wine is drying up, God's blessings are too. And the wine runs out at this wedding in first century Cana of Galilee. At this wedding. Who better than Jesus, the Messiah, to replenish the supply, right? When he does this, when he turns water to wine, he not only saves the day and rescues the newlyweds from shame, he gives the disciples a taste of who he is, and when they see it, verse 11 says, they believed in him. So both of those things happen when he turned the water to wine. But I think the most significant one is that he shows, and the gospel writer, the gospel of John, by including this story, he shows that God has chosen Jesus to be the one through whom dry, disobedient Israel gets to drink freely of God's wine once again. The blessings are returning to God's people through God's Son. It's a day of rejoicing. More and better wine than they've ever had. So we see Christ's glory in his words to his mother, woman, and the gift he brings to the wedding, wine. Finally, we see Christ's glory in the place he puts his gift. That's that fill in the blank there. In the place he puts his gift. And where does he put it? In six stone water jars. 
Uh, these weren't just any water jars. John tells us in verse 6 that they were used for Jewish rites of purification. What would be significant about these jars being the place where the water becomes wine? It's that these jars were not drinking vessels. They were for washing your hands or maybe your whole body. They were huge, 20 or 30 gallons each. The water from these six stone jars was for ceremonial cleansing. They were part of Israel's worship. To properly come to God, you washed yourself with water. That's what these jars were for. So when we come across these jars, we should think washing station, not drinking fountain, bathtub, not wine barrel. When we read the Bible, we must be careful not to read into a passage something that's not there. So every tree in the Bible is not a reference to the cross of Jesus. Every cup of wine is not an allusion to the blood of Jesus, but this wine the wine Jesus puts in Israel's instruments of cleansing, the wine that would make, mark the Messiah's coming. Jesus' hour had not yet come. His death is still in the future. But what we have here at this wedding, I think, is a parable or a picture of what is to come, the cup of the new covenant in his blood. When Jesus filled Israel's water jars, which were, again, used for ritual cleansing, for religious washings, when he filled them with wine, he was saying, I believe in a way that will be much clearer later, what can wash your dirty hands? Water from those jars. What can wash away your sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing but my blood. So John, the same author of this gospel in one of his letters, 1 John 1, 7, says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Not water, blood. What cleanses you, Israel, from your sins? Not the water from those jars. It doesn't how much, matter how much water you have. You have a thousand gallons of that water. It's not going to cleanse you from your sins. In fact, the water's gone. It's not even there anymore. But those jars aren't empty. I have filled them with wine. In essence, here's the offer. You can have stone jars filled with water if that's what you want, and that will make your skin clean. Or you can come to a fountain filled with blood, and that will make your spirit, your soul, everything deep down clean. Have all your sins washed away. What will you choose? Friends, Jesus is absolutely glorious, and he manifests his glory oftentimes in unexpected places, like a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Do you know where else he manifests his glory? Or maybe I should say, uh, when else? On Wednesdays, that's the final fill in the blank. Seeing Christ's glory at a wedding, we've seen that today, and on Wednesdays. What do I mean by Wednesdays? Well, I chose Wednesday because it was a W, and I wanted to connect it with the word wedding. If we were talking about the temple, I would have gone with Tuesday or Thursday. But here's my point. It works with any day. Here's my point. Every ordinary day is an opportunity to see the glory of Christ every day. We don't have to be with Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration to see Christ's glory. 
We don't have to be at this wedding in Cana of Galilee in the first century when he turned the water to wine to see his glory. We do see it on that mountain. We do see it at that wedding. But we can also see it on Wednesdays. Wherever and whenever we encounter Jesus, we see his glory, right? Wherever and whenever we abide with him, as John 15 uh, says in his gospel, we see his glory. Whenever and wherever we eat with him, as John says in chapter 3 of the book of Revelation, we see his glory, his glory. It's his unparalleled beauty, his majesty, his splendor, his power, his authority, how profoundly privileged we are, any of us, to get to draw near to him who is that glorious. And that privilege is for all. It's for you. If you would confess, I'm not the Christ, but Jesus, you are, and I believe in you. I want to trust my life to you. Friends, we are not the Christ, but Jesus is, and he provides everything needed for wedding days and Wednesdays and all our days, both now and for eternity. Aren't you glad that we were all invited to this wedding this morning? I'll hail the power of Jesus' name. Let's pray together. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us this morning. Show us your glory, and like the disciples there at that wedding, when we see your glory, may we believe in you. In your name we pray, amen. Amen.